0: Welcome to the Friday podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. Hope PGA Championship week is going well for you so far. Looks like Oak Hill is playing pretty firm and we might get some wind this weekend. And those are both really good things. We'll see how it turns out. A lot of people have noticed that there's not a huge amount of hype going into this major, especially compared to some recent ones. But that could all change if we get some spicy conditions this week. So I'm hoping for the best. All right. We're going to do a little historical deep dive in this episode. One of the most memorable PGA championships happened in 1938 when it was still a match play tournament. The final match that year was between a young Sam Snead and a short game master by the name of Paul Runyon. I've always found Runyon to be one of the most fascinating players in the history of the game, so I'm very excited to talk to my guest, John Deccant who is the author of a new biography of Paul Runyon called Little Poison. We're going to talk about Runyon's unique playing style, his background, and of course his showdown with Sam Snead at the 1938 PGA. All right, let's go to me and John Deccant. John Deccant, welcome to the podcast and, and congrats on the book.
1: Thank you, Garrett. Thanks for having me. It's good to be on with you.
0: Did I get your name correct?
1: You nailed it. You did. Yeah, most people go. don't. So uh, w- well done. You're plus you're plus one so far.
0: John just coached me uh, five seconds prior to us <laughs> uh, starting to record, and it is spelled D-E-C-H-A-N-T, so decant. So that's good to know. But uh, you have a biography, a new biography of Paul Runyon called Little Poison. Runyon was one of the great golfers of the 1930s, but certainly not the greatest. So what got you interested in writing about him?
1: So I um I grew up reading about golf a lot as a kid from like age twelve or thirteen on. I grew up in a small town in Kansas that didn't have a lot of golf resources. And so in order to connect with the game, I had to kind of go outside my realm. And so I read a lot about it. And I remember as a kid reading about this guy, Paul Runyon, who was nicknamed Little Poison who beat Sam Snead at the 1938 PGA championship. And so so that, I remember reading that as a kid and it kind of, it stuck with me, but two and a half decades went by and I never never gave running a second thought. And then um, uh, in 2018 or 19, I was doing an article, a magazine article for the Golfer's Journal about Phil Rogers. Um, and I had actually connected with Phil prior to his, his death um, and recorded a series of interviews with him. Um, that I had actually hoped to turn into a book. And that didn't happen. Phil Rogers passed away and, and life moved on. And I wrote this magazine article. But when I went back to the material that that on Phil Rogers, um, I, I was just I was surprised at how many times he mentioned Paul Runyon to me, because Runyon had a huge influence on his uh, his golf game as a young man. And so I thought to myself, maybe there's a book there. And, um, so I did some digging on Runyon's, Runyon's life. It was early in the pandemic, like the first spring of 2020, and I had a little extra time on my hands. And so I used that time to look into Runyon's life. And, um, the more I dug, the more I found, and I felt like there was indeed a, a story for a book. And, um, and again, he's, he's, you know, known for that PGA in 38, but what I found was there was so much more to his career and his life that had never really been documented.
0: His physical stature was the subject of a lot of commentary at the time and is something that people remember him for. I believe at one point in your book you cite a newspaper report calling him a peanut of a man. Uh, which uh, it tickles my funny bone a little bit because on the Shotgun Start, our our sister podcast, uh, Andy and Brendan sometimes dig into the histories of certain players and look up old articles that have been written about them. And often golf writers like to focus on the smallness of small golfers. Uh, So Runyon was certainly known as a small guy. What was he like physically? What was that physical presence like?
1: yeah it wasn't much. He was five foot six <laughs> five five foot seven and about hundred and thirty pounds at his peak yeah um, if, if that, Wait, which has it, to
0: be said is' not that small right I mean five foot six five foot seven like he's not he's not a not a tiny man but he's he's smaller than a lot of the great golfers of of the era perhaps correct he w- if you look at Ben
1: hogan hogan wasn't much bigger um no but interestingly though I think his nickname the little poison nickname w- it kind of went. It was not only his physical stature, but it was also the fact that he was such a short hitter. And if you, if you were to line up in the 1930s, if you were to take the top 20 or 30 golfers in the world and line them up on a driving range and watch them hit balls, it's very likely that you would come away saying Paul Runyon was the least impressive. Because not only was he a small man to look at, he didn't hit the ball very far. He had kind of an ugly swing, if we're being honest about it. And, um, and if you watch his ball flight, it was fairly ordinary and um, didn't hit it much farther than your average insurance salesman or advertising executive that played golf on the weekends. But from 100 yards and in, it was like a different player. He was, he was really the best in the world. And so at a young age, he realized that he probably wasn't going to grow much bigger. And so in order to compete with the best of the best, he needed to, to get sharp around the green, and, and he certainly did.
0: So how would you describe his style of play? How did he score? He,
1: yeah, he scored. Um, so he was a, I'd say a, a, a mediocre driver of the golf ball. He mm-hmm. wasn't. He wasn't very straight, and and he wasn't long. And so short and crooked is a bad combination. Um, but he was a he was a very good fairway wood player, a pretty good long iron player. Um, he was definitely somebody that, um, in order to compete, he had to constantly be be playing strategy. He had to be playing chess. He had to be thinking about. Um, the best place to be playing his next shot from, whether it's an angle into the green on an approach or the best leave. Oftentimes there were par fours that he simply couldn't get to in two shots. And so he had to decide, where do I want to lay my ball up to, to get up and down? Um, and he re- he really scored from around the green. He he would devastate opponents by, through sheer volume of made putts. If you think back to, to Jordan's peak, Jordan Spieth in 2015 and 16, where it felt like Every twenty and thirty footer he looked at went in. Paul Runyon basically did that for a career, and um, and he just he scored that way. He he could chip and putt, but um, he just uh, he, he had to that was the way he got by. And he um, and his the rest of his game was just good enough to give him an opportunity to, to score around the greens.
0: I've seen a couple of videos of Runyon's swing. There's some newsreels out there of of the you know thirties. PGA championships often. And, you know, occasionally you see Runyon pop up, certainly the 38 PGA championship, which we'll talk about in this episode. There's a nice, you know, substantial newsreel that you can find on YouTube. His swing is so funny looking. (laughs) And, you know, I, I know it's hard to describe a swing on a podcast. You describe it very well in your book. How would you describe how he went about hitting the ball? What was that motion like?
1: he would lunge off the ball. He basically had a, a sway built into his golf swing. And that was his, that was his power lever, I guess was a sway. And, and he would kind of lunge off the golf ball, then lunge back into impact. And his finish looked kind of wild and his balance wasn't exceptionally great. Although I mean, it must've been good enough to make contact. Right. But, but it was unattractive to look at. And interestingly, as he, as he aged, As he got older and got a little physically stronger, and I'm talking after his playing days, like in his 50s and 60s, his golf swing got better because he ditched the sway and and used a little more of an arm and wrist motion. So it became a little more aesthetically pleasing. He accumulated power more through his hands and arms and wrists and kind of snapping through impact. But in the prime of his career, he swayed off the ball, swayed back into impact, and uh, it was not pretty to look at.
0: Yeah, and the and the angles of his wrists of the shaft where you know where that all was at the top of his swing and in the follow through were all highly unconventional. It was kind of a, a lurching, awkward-looking motion, but clearly good enough to be as you said an excellent fairway wood player and an excellent uh, long iron player, right? Because that's where he often was after hitting his drives. He had, he didn't have wedges in, into the greens. He he had some longer shots. And and so he was clearly, but he found a way to, to hit those shots with a full swing.
1: Yeah, correct. He, um and again, this, this, his, his unique methods weren't just in the, like the long game. He had a strange technique around the green. He would, his chipping, he would get his elbows bent. He would bend over almost like Uh, A few years ago when Michelle Wee was putting where her back was essentially like this to the parallel to the ground. I mean, that was kind of Runyon's style. And it was I mean, there were a few players that were similar at the time, but even in his era, he was he was an outlier. Um, But, yeah, the golf swing was was not not the prettiest, but he knew how to score.
0: Can you put into perspective how good Runyon was at chipping and putting? And can you, you know, you just describe the technique a little bit. He was very idiosyncratic, but clearly it worked. How, how good was he at those kinds of shots? Uh, good enough
1: to win two major championships, for one thing. Um, he was uh, somewhere in one of his books that he published. He had a p- couple published books later in his life that were instructionals. And in one of him, one of them, he discussed that some at some point in his career, he basically self-scouted his own golf game and determined that he was more likely to um, to get to chip in from off the green. Uh, like his percentage of getting up and down was was at one point for this whatever period it was that he examined, he was more likely to chip in and average less than two shots than he was to to get down in three. Um, he, he was exceptional. He really was. And it was, there was an element to Runyon's golf game that the sports writers of the 1930s and 1940s picked up on. And they described it almost like voodoo or magic. Like you, you watched Paul Runyon play the final nine holes of a tournament he won. And you're just like, how is, how did he do this again? It harkens back to the Jordan Spieth of 2015. You're watching this and you're like, well, he doesn't drive it exceptionally straight. He's not the longest. He's long enough but he just scores. He just, it, it adds up to fewer strokes than everybody else. But, but the short game was remarkable and it, and it stayed that way, you know, really into late in his life. Um, when he was a, a teaching pro at La Jolla country club um, much later in life, again, long after his playing career um, players that would uh, like young players at the club that would caddy for him would say it was very common to go out and watch him chip in twice around. Um, one, one gentleman, Chuck Courtney, who, who was a professional turned professional in his own right, um, told me that he caddied for Runyon in his teenage years. And he recalled a story caddying for Runyon on successive Saturdays on a weekend round and Runyon, I I believe the story was that Runyon hold out from the same bunker two Saturdays in a row from off the green. So it was just, it was just, nobody else did that. And really nobody else. I don't think sense has, at least to the level that Runyon did where they were, So reliant on scoring from around the green.
0: Well, it seems impossible, right? Because chipping and putting are two very, especially putting, very high variance aspects of the game, aspects of the game that you expect to be inconsistent, right? And that's why it's a priority for great players to be very consistent ball strikers, because that's what they can control. Sometimes you can't control how many putts you hole, but clearly Runyon found some kind of answer so that he was able to hole an unusual number of putts and indeed an unusual number of chips. And so maybe that's where this sense that he was kind of a magician or you know, had some relationship with the occult came about among his contemporaries, because that is how they sort of felt about him, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, he, he cracked the code. You know, there, there was the moment in the book where he... So when he captures his first major championship at the 1934 PGA... Um, the the match ends up going into extra holes in the finals. He played Craig Wood, who used to be his boss, actually, uh, for a couple years when he was an up-and-coming club pro. And on the final green, Runyon has an eight-foot putt to win the PGA. And um, I note in there that thanks to modern modern golf analytics, we know that a PGA Tour player from eight feet is a coin flip. It's a 50-50 putt. And and Runyon buried the putt, but I I tried to note that in the book to just again draw attention to the fact that he defied odds, he defied logic, and um, I suppose too in in some respects he was pretty consistent, but but the fact that he um, he won two major championships and not twelve maybe speaks to the fact that um, all these the universe had to be just perfectly aligned in order for him to to win, but he did it a lot. I mean, he won 29 events, two majors. Uh, he was on multiple Ryder cup teams, you know, he, um, so he, he found a way to crack that code, whatever it was. And it was, it was scoring.
0: He was also unusual in some other ways and in some, you know, the, the way that he prepared to play and the way that he treated his body, the way that he even tracked what he was doing on the golf course. So what were some of the, additional ways that Paul Runyon was an eccentric player for, for his time?
1: Yeah, he was um, strikingly forward-thinking. He did things in the 30s and 40s that now PGA Tour players take for granted, eating the proper diet, monitoring their nutrition during a round of golf, um, laying off indulgent food after the round of golf. Runyon was, for, for instance, when he took a job at, uh, at, White, at Metropolis Country Club in White Plains, New York in the 30s, Um, This was a large club with a lot of members and a lot of powerful people that wanted to essentially wine and dine him to get in his good graces. And he would get invited to stay after hours to have a drink with a member or go to dinner with their family. And early on, he made the conscious decision to just say no to that stuff. So he, he became a teetotaler, laid off the booze, laid off the indulgent food and the other creature comforts that are at a country club and treated his body like his greatest asset, which it really was. Um, he was, you know, he was Gary Player before there was Gary Player in that in that regard. Um, in terms of his diet, he was very careful, especially on the day of a round of golf. He would, he never ate, for instance, he didn't eat ham or pork the morning of a round of golf because he felt like it digested too slowly and it would just sit in his stomach in a lump and make him feel miserable. So he would eat cottage cheese, some toast, a little honey. He would drink some tea or some, some kind of warm water. Um, He was very uh, dialed into how much he would sweat on a, on a hot day. He just, he paid attention to all these things decades before anybody else did. And I think it was part of his advantage. And it also was probably why he lived to a ripe old age and and stayed competitive to a very old age. He, he was a, a good golfer up until the last years of his life because he had taken care of his body. And, um, again, nowadays we see the best in the world. They do that, um, because they know they have to, to compete, but he did it during an era when nobody did that. And so he, he was ahead of his time.
0: It adds to the sense that he got everything he possibly could get out of himself and his golf game. That that's really a big part of the Runyon legacy, right? Just maximizing what you're given to a pretty incredible degree.
1: Absolutely. He, he took what he was given and he, he milked it, milked it for everything was worth, which is maybe the perfect metaphor because he was raised on a dairy farm in hot springs, Arkansas, adjacent to the country club. But he, he milked his talent for all it was. And he, um, and he also lived his life in a way that gave himself every possible chance to be successful when he teed it up in competition.
0: This episode of the Friday podcast is brought to you by Echo Golf Shoes. Echo's purpose is to help you simply enjoy the game. When you're wearing Echo, you don't need to worry about your shoes, about traction or wet feet or comfort. You can just focus on playing well and having fun. This is why Comfort is at the heart of every shoe Echo designs. It's why they perfected fluid form direct comfort technology to deliver unparalleled comfort and quality. It's why they created biome natural motion technology to bring you closer to the ground for stability and control. It's why they use Gore-Tex surround construction to keep your feet dry, but still let the shoes breathe. And it's why 90% of golfers feel the difference and buy a second pair. Echo golf shoes are made for all golfers, so go find a pair for yourself at us.echo.com slash golf. That's us.ecco.com slash golf. Wearing is believing. Take your next step with Echo. So John, I can see that a tremendous amount of research went into this book. So, what were some of your key sources or things that you did to find new information about Runyon's life or to flesh out existing information about his life?
1: Yeah. um, And to put that answer in context, you got to remember when I started, we were in the early days of the pandemic. And so the world had slowed down. There was limited travel there for a, for a period of time. And so I was, I, I identified right away three or four research trips that I wanted to take, but because of what was going on in the world, I decided to postpone those. And I instead focused on newspaper research right out of the gate. And then I conducted a lot of interviews, um, mostly by phone and then eventually in person as things settled down a bit. But I, so I focused initially on tracing his career through archive newspapers and then also anything else that had been written about him in books and, um, I was able to track down um, the, the historian, Sidney Matthew, who's probably one of the world's foremost experts on Bobby Jones. I reached out to Sidney to see if he had any any um, ideas for me to chase regarding Runyon. And he said, oh, I, I actually interviewed Paul Runyon about Bobby Jones in the early 90s. And so he pointed me in the, in the direction of his Bobby Jones collection that's at uh, Emory, Emory University in Atlanta. And so I got access to... a. Uh, it's probably a 90 minute video interview that he conducted with Paul Runyon. Oh, wow. Uh, I think, I think it was in 1993. And so he asked some very direct questions of Runyon that were, um, just so helpful to me in terms of my research. And then, uh, so eventually I started re, you know, going out into the world. Um, I, uh, I traveled to Shawnee, Pennsylvania, Shawnee on the Delaware to see Shawnee Country Club,
0: which was the site of the 38 PGA championship.
1: Exactly. It's where, the, yeah, exactly. That's, that's right. And then I um, I traveled to Hot Springs, Arkansas, where he was born. I visited La Jolla, California, where he um, spent a lot of his um, later years teaching. And and then I also one of the luckiest breaks I got was connecting with with his son Jeff Runyon. So so Paul and Joan Runyon had two sons, uh, Paul Jr. and Jeff. And unfortunately, by the time I re- tried to reach out to the Runyon family, Jeff, uh, Paul Jr. had passed away. I just missed him but I, I I reached out to to the other son, Jeff, and I think i I think I wrote him a couple emails that I wasn't even sure if I had the right email address. I placed a few phone calls to different numbers, and I wasn't sure if I was leaving a message at the right number or not. And then one day out of the blue, when I was just about to give up, and I, at this point I'm probably halfway into my to my book, I think I had already got a a publisher to agree to publish it. So I was pretty far down the road. I picked up the phone and I got Jeff Runyon to answer my call, luckily. And and interestingly, it turned out the very first phone number I had was indeed the correct number. And he had just been slow in getting back to me, and which was fine. I was grateful to have the chance to talk to him. And so we shared a couple of phone calls over the next few months. And then at some point, we agreed to meet in person. And so, so I traveled out to uh, La Quinta, California. I think that was the spring of I get my dates mixed up. I think it was the spring of 2022, uh, early spring. And I spent three days with Jeff Runyon and, um, asked him a lot of questions about his, his parents and his memories of growing up in that world, that golf world, you know? And then the, the, the other neat part of that was he took me out into his garage and he had a, basically a, a trunk that looked I mentioned in the book, it looked like it could have been recovered from the wreckage of the Titanic. I mean, It was an olive drab looking trunk straight out of the 1920s. And um, he opened it up and there were just priceless pieces of his father's life in there. Um, Old newspaper clippings, handwritten letters, tons and tons of telegrams, which were very helpful. Um, There were some love letters, some correspondence that Paul and his wife, Joan, had written to each other early in their courtship. And so that ended up being just a a great source of material for me. And, and then Jeff and I got to know each other and really like each other and become friends. And so, um, he kind of became a champion of my project and cooperated, you know, fully. And, um, and I think he was really happy with the way the book turned out too.
0: Now, part of the result of all this research that you did is that you're able to give a very textured portrait of Paul Runyon's early life in hot springs, Arkansas, So could you just tell me about that a little bit? What were the circumstances in which he grew up?
1: So he he was raised on a a struggling dairy farm, but the dairy farm happened to be right across the road from Hot Springs Country Club. And to put Hot Springs Country Club into context, it was one of America's first prominent resort courses. Um, I think it was the initial routing was done, I want to say like five years after Chicago Golf Club had been founded. So, um, for various reasons, the folks in hot springs were ahead of the times with, with golf that had to do with the fact that the hot springs was a, a tourist destination due to its, um, pleasant weather. Um, it's, uh, the hot spring water, the hotel lifestyle there. It was a place that people, uh, wealthy folks traveled to, to spend holidays and get out of the colder weather. And so golf was the perfect, um, we'll call it the perfect respite for that respite. And so they, um, the hot Springs country club became a a well-known golf destination. And one day Paul Runyon decided to walk across the street and see about caddying. And um, initially he had a hard time again, because of his diminutive stature, he had a hard time getting bags because people didn't think he could keep up. And so uh, fortunately he buddied up with a guy named Jimmy Norton, who was the head professional at hot Springs country club and Jimmy Norton really took Paul Runyon under his wing. Uh, Norton had come over from Scotland. So he he knew about club making. He knew the history of the game as it was from Scotland. And he passed these things along to to young Paul Runyon. And then um, eventually Runyon takes up the game as a player. And right away he realizes, I mean, it became a theme throughout his life that he was not going to be a long hitter. And so he had to figure out other ways to score and so crafting that great short game was, uh, came early on in his playing days. And the other point I mentioned early on in the book that I think is very relevant, um, in my opinion, to, to Runyon's short game technique. So Hot Springs Country Club was originally a sand green golf course in its earliest days. And um, I grew up playing a nine-hole sand green golf course in western Kansas, which is still in operation today. And when I go home to visit my parents, I usually go play around there. And so I think that, that connected me to the material a little bit personally because I saw something in Paul Runyon's life that I had I had experienced in my own life, which was kind of special for me. And um, But I, it's my belief and my contention that growing up on sand greens had a lot to do with the style of shots that Paul Runyon chose to play around the green. Um, so anyway, he develops this great short game technique apprentices with the head pro at Hot Springs. And then from there, he just kind of keeps advancing. And I think in in the, um, I think he was 17 or 19 years old, he got a job as the head pro at Concordia Country Club in Little Rock. And so at that point, he was on his own and off in the world. And, um, and he, it just, the trajectory kept pointing up from there.
0: His first big victory, as I understand it, was at the North and South, the old tournament at Pinehurst. And connecting to your point about sand greens, at that time in history, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Pinehurst still had sand greens at that point. And so I wonder if, uh, if that was sort of a factor in his uh, success at, at Pinehurst.
1: It did. You are correct. He showed up at the 1930 North and South Open at Pinehurst, virtually unknown. Um, and he had just gotten hired by Craig Wood, actually, to go work at a club on the East Coast under Wood's tutelage.
0: And Craig Wood was one of the great professionals of, of, of the era. Correct. Correct. Yes.
1: I believe was also, it became a two time major champion. Um, and so Runyon had some, he accepted the job, but he had some serious reservations about the job. He had, he owed some money in Arkansas to some folks that had backed him financially to start his playing career. It didn't go so well. He had just gotten engaged. So he's got all this, this stuff going on in his life, which, um, certainly, you know, posed a distraction and, and he showed up at Pinehurst in 1930 and he won the North and South Open just out of nowhere and um, on sand greens. And so to your point, I think that that certainly played a role in his victory at Pinehurst. And um, and really from there, there was no looking back. He, he right away, he got catapulted into the golf spotlight by virtue of winning that signature event. And um, and he proved that it wasn't a one-off. He, he just, he kept getting better from there.
0: By the 1930s, obviously Runyon had joined. I guess you'd call it the professional circuit that was organized by the PGA of America. This is what would eventually morph into the PGA Tour. There was a lot of history that happened between, uh, you know, the the circuit that Runyon played on in the 1930s and the PGA Tour that we know. Today, uh, you know, now it's no longer organized by the PGA of America. It's no longer a club professionals circuit, et cetera, et cetera. So, can you just give me a sense of what the PGA Tour, and I'm using kind of scare quotes right now around that, was like in the 1930s? It was obviously very different than than what it is today.
1: It was, and that was one of the, my favorite parts of uncovering that for the for the research on this book. Um, in fact, one of the great profiles of that era. Was written by the great Dan Jenkins in Sports Illustrated, um, and I think it was an article that he wrote in the '60s, looking mm-hmm. back on the '30s.
0: Is that an SI Vault? Is that available online? Because I wanna, I wanna check that out. <laughs> I, I believe it is because I must
1: have found it there. Because I don't, okay. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where I found it. But um, cool. and, and Dan Jenkins, you talk about a guy that can write. Um, mm-hmm. He had a talent, but but he romanticized this era, and it was kind of like the Wild West. It was. Um, it was a bit of a disjointed series of events that were a tour, uh, although it wasn't formally organized as such. And so the, um, the other thing to keep in mind is most of the, the top flight professionals of that era uh, took up jobs. They, most of them were located on the East Coast during the golf season there, and then they would play their competitive golf or most of their competitive golf um, in warmer locations during the winter months. So they would go to Florida, the Carolinas. Texas, California, uh, Arizona. And so it was just kind of this clandestine operation. They, they traveled from tournament to tournament in, I mean, a bare bones operation. If you were lucky enough to have a car, it probably broke down between tournaments. Um, they, they shared hotel rooms, they shared meals. They, they stuffed when they were in Florida, these guys would stuff oranges into their golf bag to save on the food budget. They would stuff their dirty laundry into their food, into their golf bag. Um, so it was just, it was, uh, I think I called it the pork and beans days of professional golf. It was, it was just in its infancy, but there was a real camaraderie, I think, because of that and, and a closeness that existed, even though it was every man for himself. Um, they were all kind of in the same boat because they weren't playing for much money. Most of these professional tournaments were supplemental income and the majority of their, their wages were derived from the club where they, where they gave instruction during the, during the golf season. And so um, it was just a different era and and the purses compared to what the players pay for play for today were comically low. I mean, it, you know, um, and especially during the Great Depression, when there's a large portion of the nation is out of the workforce and many people are out of housing and in very dire straits. And so um, they didn't play for a lot of money, but they but they certainly played for pride. And I think they played for pride. Um, I suppose now you talk call it building a brand, but back then it really meant for building name recognition um, and being, being a known commodity as a professional
0: golfer. Hearing you describe that era, it strikes me that there are still some very hazy vestiges of that schedule and that structure in the current PGA Tour. There's a West Coast swing. Back then there was essentially a west coast swing a california set of tournaments that included the Bing Crosby Pro AM and included a Palm Springs tournament i believe and included the LA Open which is now the Genesis Invitational which is sort of a you know historical middle finger but what can you do and there was also perhaps a florida swing as well and so you you have these little you know sort of holdovers from this very much bygone era i think i think it's pretty interesting and it and it uh brings home for me how important it is for the pga tour the current pga tour to maintain some of these aspects of their schedule that are still there
1: yeah you you're absolutely right um there's a, well for instance that that article that i referenced that dan jenkins wrote about golf in the 30s i think it was in that article that he described the north and south open at pinehurst as the masters before there was a masters it was it was the right. South's premier golf event, and um, he. I think he said that it finally Augusta eventually outsoutherned the North and South, which I just thought was a just a <laughs> great way to, to use language, you know. Um, but but uh, but yeah, it was. Um, there's a lot of that still in place today. Um, it's it's deep seated in that regard, and um, and I think over time there have been you know if you look at golf past present. If you try to describe the way the schedule works to somebody, they probably that doesn't know golf. They probably look at you like you're crazy because there's just it's just nuts how these things fit together. But it's like you say, it's all rooted in history and the way they used to do it, and much of that structure does remain in place today. The other part of that is the weather, of course, has a lot to do with it. You you go south when it's cold in the northeast. You go to California early in the year when the weather's decent out there, but you can't play golf in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Michigan or wherever else. And so the weather played a, a large part of that as well.
0: So what were some of Runyon's early successes on this fledgling circuit? What were uh what, what were the best seasons, best accomplishments, etc.?
1: So 1930 was really when he got hot. Got his start winning the North and South. And then 1933 was another big year. He became a he he was a Ryder Cup member that year for the first time. But an interesting victory of his came at the 1933 uh, Florida All-Year-Round Open at the Miami Biltmore, and uh, the reason that's significant is they played that week at the Biltmore in Miami with six-inch cups, so instead of the traditional four and a quarter inches, the officials in charge increased the size of the hole to six inches, and the person behind this idea was Gene Sarazen, who felt that putting mattered too much, and he wanted to I guess skew the odds and what he thought would be in his favor. And Ben Hogan
0: would have liked this too.
1: Hogan would have loved it. Right. (laughs) And the the opposite thing happened. Runyon went out and he didn't just win. He won by, I think nine or 10 shots. It was a runaway. And um, that was a significant victory for him. And the other part that was significant for me, for my research was, uh, and who knows why, but for some reason that week they, they started, they were compiling statistics not only putting, but driving statistics uh, for the top 20 players in the field. And they published them in the newspapers in Florida. And I believe for the week, Paul Runyon averaged something like 220 or 226 yards off the tee driving the golf ball. Um, So he was giving up, you know, at minimum 15 yards to most of his competition and usually 40 yards. And again, it it just puts in context what he was able to do from – from that point on, because to win by 10 shots when you're giving up 15 to 40 yards in every tee box is just remarkable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to win, I believe he won nine times in 1933, seven times in 1934. This is just at least what I quickly looked up. Uh, to, to win that number of times with that type of game is, is pretty extraordinary. He won the 1934 PGA Championship as well and then it was after that that sam sneed broke onto the scene sam sneed is a big character in your book so what was his coming out party on the pga professional circuit in the in the 30s
1: it was uh, i believe the year was 19 19- Thirty-six or thirty-seven? I'm confused. It was now, 37 I, I've Thirty-seven. Just, I've, just,
0: I've just read your book, so I have an advantage in this uh, in this regard. <laughs> but yeah, early early nineteen thirty-seven, he goes to the west coast, right?
1: Yes, he goes to the west coast. He's he's mostly an unknown player. A few few folks might have known who he was, but um, he was he was tall. He was lean. He could hit at a country mile, and nobody knew who he was. And so he went to the um, to the west coast that year and, and won a couple events right away. And, um, really from that point on his life was never the same because he instantly became the guy and, um, almost overnight. And, uh, in, in a sense, stardom almost hit him a little too fast because if you read it, if you, if you understand Sam Sneed's background, he was another country boy from, from Virginia, uh, also born in hot Springs, but that was hot Springs, Virginia, not Arkansas. And, um, this this success happened so fast i mean the, the closest parallel is probably tiger woods coming out party in 1996 and 1997 where you just come onto the scene and you're instantly the world's best player within a matter of six months to a year and so um and it wasn't like he had um it wasn't a perfectly smooth ride there were a couple strange withdrawals where he would pick up his ball in the middle of a round and walk off the golf course and uh a couple of rules, rules violations or rules situations that didn't reflect the best on him. But but anyone that was paying attention pretty soon realized that this guy is the best player in the world. And um, and he wasn't even really, I don't think, playing to his potential yet. And he was still winning handily. Um, and so by the time that he arrived at the 1938 PGA Championship, um, Runyon, had, Runyon was still probably one of the top 10 players in the world. But maybe was a bit of an afterthought and Sneed was one of the two or three guys that were betting favorites every time they teed it up. And uh, um, he clearly Sam Sneed had a, a bright future, which, which he proved correct. Ultimately he had a remarkable career, but, um, but it was a little bit of a bumpy ride in places early on.
0: Yeah, something that's so interesting about Sneed is that he's got this perfect golf swing, all the power in the world all the talent in the world. He was an exceptional athlete. You outline in your book some of the other sports that he played when he, when he was a kid and he and he seemed to excel at all of them. But he wasn't mentally bulletproof. It it doesn't seem. You know, he did have some clutch wins in his career and some big wins, but he never won the US Open. And I think he got scared off of those wins a couple of times by Ben Hogan, who was very very mentally bulletproof and so Sneed is this interesting mixture, right because he he's got a little bit of fragility in him at least that's my interpretation. I wonder if you agree
1: absolutely i your analysis there is spot on he um he was not perfect. he had a little bit of scar tissue um I think he uh he also had early in his career, and I get into this in the book a little bit. There were some folks um, that probably should have had his best interest in heart at heart that didn't that that wanted to see him fail a little bit and tried to put a few obstacles in his way to trip him up early on and so I think I think the the world kind of punched back at Sam Snead early in his career and it might have um, scared him a bit and, and it might have affected his uh, the way he treated uh, the golf press the fans the outside world for for the rest of his career. Um, yeah, he had some heartbreak. He had some some uh, victories taken away, you know, at the eleventh hour. And so you're right; he wasn't bulletproof, um, and there was a vulnerability there. Uh, to draw a modern day parallel, it's maybe a little bit of what Rory McIlroy has gone yeah. through since yeah. he since he's won his last major. And and you know, the majority of the golf world thinks very highly of Rory. And probably part of the appeal is the the fact that he puts puts himself out there on display and the fragility it's very human and sam sneed had a lot of that and um so he had these these skills that were otherworldly but he had a very it was an interesting combination because he was a very human person and uh had some scar tissue and it certainly certainly affected him from time to time
0: This episode of the Friday podcast is brought to you by Mizen and Maine. No one gets excited about wearing dress shirts. They're boring, uncomfortable, and stiff. Mizen and Maine dress shirts are the exact opposite. They're as comfortable as your favorite t-shirt and fashionable enough to wear anywhere. You'll see one hanging in your closet and genuinely get excited to put it on and head to work. And I can tell you that as someone who works from home... I love Mizen and Main dress shirts because they're comfortable enough to wear around the house, but when I get on a video call, which I often do, I look like I have it together. Plus, Mizen and Main makes more than just work clothes. If they can make a dress shirt comfortable, imagine what they can do with polos, pants, shorts, pullovers, and t-shirts. If you're wondering how people wear Mizzen and Main outside the office, you might see a few professional golfers wearing it on TV. Shout out to Mackenzie Hughes and Seb Straka. Mizzen and Maine is comfortable and it performs, which is really what you want out of your clothing. Here's the deal for fried egg listeners. If you use code fried egg at MizzenandMain.com, you can get $35 off any purchase of $125 or more. That's code fried egg, all one word, at MizzenandMain.com. So Sneed and Runyon make this fascinating pair because you have someone with the you know, all the talent you could possibly imagine, but maybe he doesn't always make the most of it. And then Runyon, who doesn't have the full complement of talent that uh, elite professional golfers usually have, and he absolutely maximizes it through a, a number of intangibles. And they collide at the 1938 PGA Championship. So let's set the scene for this tournament. First of all, you, you had a fantastic venue, Tell me a little bit about this golf course.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Shawnee Country Club in Shawnee on the Delaware, Pennsylvania was the original A.W. Tillinghast golf course. It was where he got his start as a designer. He was uh, friends with the Worthington family that developed the property there at Shawnee. It was uh, a resort property with a championship-level golf course, which was... I think Nowadays, that's an odd combination. Usually, we think of resort courses as the sort of courses where the tour guys would shoot 32 under in a week. But, but uh, Shawnee was a little different, at least in that era. And so uh, it's a, it's a golf course that's built. uh, I believe it's 15 or 16 of the holes are essentially located on an island. And so you have to cross the Delaware river after the first hole to get to the rest of the golf course. And then you come back, um, back to the clubhouse and cross the river again toward the end of your round. And so Tillinghast got a look at this property um, early on. Again, he hadn't built anything yet and uh, he had free reign essentially to build what he wanted. And then he kept tinkering with it over the years. There was an initial routing. Then there was a revision to that routing. And I believe 1914 was when the most significant revision happened to the golf course where it essentially became the golf course that staged the PGA championship in 1938. And then he did a little bit of more fidgeting with it to get the length where they wanted it. I I think it played around 6,500 yards for the PGA in 1938, but it had a lot of history. It was regarded in that era as the golf capital of America for a lot of reasons. Um, But it was a a destination. It had a a regular stop a regular tour event tour, so to speak. And um, it hosted the 1938 PGA. And I I believe they, the the club spent like $20,000 in the year leading up to it, which again, you got to think in 1938, that's a significant sum. To get the course up to championship standards. And so it was it was just the perfect spot for, for Runyon to claim his most most uh prominent victory.
0: What does the course look like today? Just jumping to the to the present real quick. Uh this course is still there, but it's not really in the same form, right?
1: Correct. And the folks on the fried egg, I mean it's this is kind of a sad story in a lot of ways, but it but it is and it isn't. Um the original Tillinghast routing is not there, at least in its entirety. So um, there are now, the property now has 27 holes. So they, years after the 38 PGA, they essentially carved out nine more holes on the property basically to help the cash register because it generates more revenue. And so, um, so you see the property now, and some of, there's a few holes that are still intact. The 18th, which is a long par three is still basically the way it was. I believe the opening hole is mostly unchanged. Um, the 16th, which is the which was kind of an early day uh, island green par 3, is mostly still intact the way it was. But the rest of the routing has changed significantly. There's a, a large spine that runs kind of across the island portion of the golf course. And the Tillinghast routing had many of the holes playing over the spine. And the modern-day routing now has the holes essentially playing alongside the spine. So they don't mm-hmm. really... It doesn't come into play as much, um, so it's a changed property in in, in many ways. Um, Hale Irwin actually captured the uh, uh, the NCAA championships at Shawnee with this revised mm-hmm. routing when he won in the '60s. But it's it's a different property, and um, the Kirkwood family that owned the property actually have looked into uh, trying to restore it to one of the original Tillinghast routings. And I think they were very close to pulling pulling the trigger on it um, right before the the um, Great Recession hit, and wow. they didn't they didn't do it. And um, I think they still maybe want to. And uh, the land is essentially, I mean, it's it's all still there. You know, you could still do it. It could be pulled off, but there are some complications. They've had some flood issues there. It's located right along the Delaware River. So there would be some water control that would have to happen. A lot of logistics involved, I'm sure there, but um, it could be done, and um, I wouldn't rule it out. I think I think there's a part of them that, that want to do it, and I think it could certainly gather some support. I mean, think about it: the original A.W. Tillinghast Golf Course; it would it would become a destination.
0: And the side of this tournament, uh, so it sounds like there's maybe at least an outside chance. And you know, one of the arguments I'd make here is that Tillinghast's early career, his work in the 1910s, was so interesting because it hadn't kind of settled into the groove that he hit with Baltusrol and Wingfoot later on, where where some of his architectural ideas became. I would say a little bit more conventional aside from the greens, but he smoothed out some of the eccentricities of his early stuff. And so if you look at Somerset Hills Country Club, which is an early Tillinghast design, that's a a highly, highly uh, quirky golf course in a wonderful way. And so maybe there would be some of that to To look at at uh, at Shawnee. I think it would be pretty cool. But getting back to the subject, 1938 PGA, uh, Sneed and Runyon in the championship match. What were basically the expectations for this championship match? And I should mention, by the way, in case people don't know, the PGA championship used to be a match play format tournament. There would be a qualifying stroke play portion of it, and then it would go to match play. It was essentially the same format as we still see in the u.s amateur so that's one important thing to to mention uh in in the pga championships history but we can fast forward to the championship match sneed versus runyon there were some odds going around what were the expectations uh for for this match
1: sneed was supposed to win and it was supposed to be a runaway it, um odds makers had him pegged anywhere between a two to one and a ten to one favorite so this was not even supposed to be close. And it's interesting because if you, if you consider their records at the time, Runyon had a very accomplished playing record. He was far more experienced. He had already won a major championship and a PGA at that. So he knew, he knew how to get through a match play bracket and, and survive in advance, so to speak. Sneed of course was a longer hitter, more talented, um, probably a hotter player coming in. And, um, I think the odds makers just assumed based on their skill set that, that Sam Snead would have no problem getting rid of Runyon. But again, the opposite was true. Runyon shocked the world and it, it had uh, um, less to do with that lack in skills and more to do with his grit and his savvy. He um, in the finals, he, I, I believe there were, I forget the number of par fives they played that day in the 36 hole final, which didn't make it, anywhere close to 36 holes because Runyon won in such a runaway, but uh, Runyon never lost a par five. So consider that for a moment. He's giving up between 40 and 70 yards to Snead off every tee box, and he doesn't lose a par five. Um, I, and he, it wasn't like Snead played badly that day. I think he shot even par or one under par for the 29 holes they played, but, but Runyon, um, Runyon was on top of him right out of the gate and didn't let up, kept building on his lead. And I think at a certain point, this is where Sneed's um, psyche probably probably haunted him a bit. He once he got down, he didn't see a route out of it. He just felt like, you know, when's this going to end already? Because I don't have a chance here. And there was there was just no stopping Runyon that day. Um, the other interesting part of that week is it was a, a very hot week in Pennsylvania. Really, the entire summer had been warm. And so prior to the PGA, Runyon spent a week actually training at a health farm uh, on the Hudson River in New York to acclimate his body to warm temperatures and high humidity. And so he he showed up at Shawnee with a fresh mindset and a, um, a body that was ready to go. He had, he had reset his diet. And so really, it was just a matter of making sure the golf game was there, and it was. And um, and he, he took care of Snead pretty easily. And if you would have had uh, some money on Runyon, you would have won a lot of it that day because he was a significant underdog. And uh, one of the bookmakers was a, a gentleman named Jack Doyle, who was a probably one, of, if not one of maybe America's most prominent bookmaker, bookmakers in that day. And supposedly he had Runyon as a 10 to 1 underdog at the start of the match. And, um, and he, had, he, had, he had made Runyon an underdog all week long, which just miffed Runyon based on his record. He's like, what's this guy got against me? I, how am I not favored in any of these matches? And one of the great discoveries in my research, and it came from the, the Runyon family archive that Jeff Runyon allowed me access to, was a telegram that Jack Doyle had left Paul Runyon in the lobby of the Buckwood Inn, which was the hotel on, at the Shawnee Country Club, on the morning of the finals. So, so Doyle headed back to the city. He headed back to New York before the match began uh, having made Runyon a significant underdog, but he, he left Runyon basically a good luck telegram saying uh, if it's any indication, you're already, you're going to be just fine, so to speak. And um, Runyon held on to it and, and the family still has it to this day, but, uh, but yeah, it was a special, special day for Paul Runyon. And I think, the significance of that match was that it caused everyone to reconsider what they thought they knew about golf and about competition, because it was, it was an upset that nobody saw coming.
0: What was Sneed's reaction to the match? How would you characterize that? I think during the match itself, it was
1: like a nightmare that he just couldn't find a way out of, and he just wanted to get done with it already. Um, Once the match ended, this is kind of interesting. So the match ended on what was at the time the 11th hole at Shawnee Country Club. And I do do the math and I put that in the book. But from the 11th green back to the clubhouse is a a significant walk. It was close to a mile. And I just picture what Snead must have felt like having gotten beaten eight and seven by the shortest hitter in pro golf. And then you have to now walk back to the clubhouse from a mile away you know, amid a throng of spectators that were probably shocked and excited for Runyon and probably making jokes about what, what happened to Sneed, you know? And so that had to be a humiliating moment for the guy, but to his credit, he was a perfect gentleman. Um, in the aftermath of the match, he said the right things. I think he was puzzled. He was in a bit of a a state of shock. And he, at one point he said that, that Runyon wasn't even human, but, um, and again, to his credit, the following week, uh, Sneed traveled to Chicago uh, the next event, the next tour stop, and he won the event so um he didn't sulk too long, but the problem with it he had to live live this the rest of his life. Um, he and Runyon crossed paths numerous times, and if there were other people in the room, um, there was this shtick that they did where you know Runyon would make a joke about beating Sneed, and Sneed kind of had to take it he had he had no comeback and so um, but to his credit, he was a gentleman about it, but I'm sure it had to hurt. And um, But again, it was a career filled with disappointments. And so maybe it was one of the early disappointments and what became a recurring theme and, and maybe hardened him a little bit for handling that later in his career.
0: And he eventually did win, win some PGA championships. I guess I'm I'm curious, as a side note, whether the PGA championship was at that time considered a major. Now that, that term is maybe not historically applicable to how people talked about big golf tournaments back in this era. But when Bobby Jones won the quadrilateral, it was none of those was the PGA championship because obviously Jones was an amateur. And and so it was the British and U S open and amateur and so was the PGA championship considered a major? And if it, if it was, when did it kind of ascend to that status, that esteem? So I I'd, I'd say,
1: yes, it was. And I think it really, it coincided with, with Jones's retirement, um, mm. and the, in the emergence of the professional golfer onto the scene. So, um, for, you know, for most of Jones's career, the amateurs were glorified, right. And the professionals were kind of second-class citizens. I think by the time Runyon won his PGAs, the tide had turned in that regard. Um, there's a few clips I found where Runyon is interviewed about recounting that PGA. And he, he describes it as, I won the Professional Golfers National Championship. Um, I think he thinks of it as like a US Open for pros. It's kind of mm-hmm. his, his was his mindset. And so I think it very, very much was a major championship, But but that's a great point you raise and it's very debatable because at the time, the again when he won at the North and South Open in 1930, uh, the the golf riders treated the North and South as a major,
0: mm-hmm. and so and, and the Western it, Open might have been uh, considered that at the time as correct.
1: well. correct. Correct, yeah. So, so I think it's it's certainly debatable. Um, in my opinion, uh, it, it is and was, but um, but yeah, it's it's certainly a, a good a worthy debate.
0: And it made national news. You know, it wasn't as though this was just something that people talked about in Shawnee that one day. It was it was a big deal, and and Runyon uh, got a lot of notoriety for it. Uh, so Paul Runyon ended up dying at the age of ninety three, I believe, in two thousand two and this was, I, I don't know if there's any meaning in this necessarily, but it was just two months before Sam Sneed died. And so these these two men's lives seem to be intertwined in, in this interesting way. But what was Runyon known for in his later years? How did he spend his later decades?
1: Yeah, I think actually Runyon, uh, I think Runyon died 67 days it was before Sneed, which I try, you know, as a writer, you're trying to make these connections. And I think I made the point in the book that 67 days. He had thrown a 67 at Sneed on the morning round at Shawnee that day in 1938 as a parallel. Um, so, yeah, they were connected in a lot of ways throughout their the rest of their careers. Runyon really was derailed. His playing career was, I'll use the term, derailed by World War II. Um, he joined the service like a lot of able-bodied men of, of a certain age and and did his duty for his country and then when he um, got out of the service, he actually left golf, um, at least professional golf, for a couple years. And strangely, he sold jewelry, which when I first found that, I had a hard time even believing it. Um, and he continued to play a little bit, um, uh, I wouldn't say as a hobby, but he he essentially quit. Become, he, for a few years, he ceased to be a, a PGA professional. But that didn't last long. He eventually gets a job at Annandale Golf Club in Pasadena. Um, And from there, he goes to La Jolla Country Club in in La Jolla, California. So really, it was during those years on the West Coast when he became thought of as one of golf's preeminent instructors. And of course, he was um, well known for teaching the short game, but he taught all aspects of golf, long game, short game, mental game. Um, And he became very influential in a number of uh, West um, Coast-born golfers, including Phil Rogers, who I mentioned before. Uh, Mickey Wright, Gene Littler, uh, Chuck Courtney. So he had a lot, he had a big impact on a lot of um, young players that came out of that that uh, California area over the the ensuing decades. And then he kept playing. I mean, the, the man played competitively. He made a run at the the the, the U.S. Open that Ben Hogan won at uh, Oakland Hills. I think Runyon was the fifty four hole leader or tied for the lead. He he scared the field at the the uh the the uh, open championship that arnold palmer won in the 60s at royal Litham and st anne's so he he remained very competitive um for years but but he wasn't the same guy that he was before the war and and, and really made his reputation as an instructor and, and a very good one and um and then when sahali country club was formed in seattle in the 60s they were searching the country far and wide for a prominent professional to come uh teach at their club and they hired Paul Runyon. He that's how well thought of he was. He he was the sort of guy that could put your club on the map. And um he wrote a couple books about about uh playing golf and one of them was a book targeted at senior golfers, but really it was an instructional for anybody. Um, he wrote a book about the the scoring game and the short game and um so he stayed very active in the golf business throughout his lifetime. Um, he received the PGA's Distingu- Distinguished Service Award in the uh, '90s, so uh, kind of had a second second act really as an instructor. And to many people, he's he's more well known for that than he was as a player,
0: right? And he was a a distinctive kind of instructor, right? He he taught sort of a method, especially when it came to the short game. Um, he taught basically how how he went about chipping and putting, right? Yeah, correct. He,
1: he, he told his students to use all their clubs. He didn't want them to just use the 54 degree sandwich. He wanted them to use everything from the four iron all the way through the sandwich. And so he, he tried to impart as much of his own personal experience onto his students as he could. And a lot of those were resistant and so were his contemporaries in pro golf. Um, ben Hogan reportedly approached him a time or two about some help with his chipping and putting but he refused to take Runyon's advice because wor- he was worried he would look funny. And, and I'm sure he wasn't the only one, if that story is indeed true. The, the same is true for, for Jack Nicklaus. When he was a struggling player in the late 70s, he sought out Phil Rogers, who essentially – Phil Rogers taught him Paul Runyon's playbook around the greens with a few other Phil Rogers variations. But it, it, it brought Jack Nicklaus um, back from probably the brink of retirement. Only Jack could really tell you that, but I think he was, things were trending that way. So, so Runyon definitely had an influence, a strong influence on other parts of the game as he aged. And, and you're right. He taught a, a very distinct methodology. Um, he got, he he became um, a proponent of Ernest Jones concept on swinging the golf club. And he, he was a, a student of science and math. And so he continually looked for new information that would influence his teaching and so he never really quit in that regard he, he was a lifer in golf and he up until the day he died he was trying to figure it out just like we all are
0: well it's a fascinating life uh an excellent book little poison john thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: yeah thanks garrett i appreciate it thanks for having me <laughs>
0: This episode of the fried egg podcast was edited by Matt Brucius. Thank you, Matt. The single best way to support the fried egg is to subscribe to club TFE. We've got a lot going on in club TFE right now. During PGA championship week, we had an architect's roundtable all about Donald Ross. We had a video earlier in the week in which Andy pointed out one thing that was significant about each hole at Oak Hill. So we're doing that kind of stuff exclusively in Club TFE for members. To see what the total offering is for Club TFE, go to the slash membership. It's been really fun so far, and I hope you join us. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back after the PGA Championship for a recap pod.